So some of y'all know that I used to work at Christ the King and Brad, I'm Brad, that's Brad, was at Christ the King with me and Anna was there and so it's so fun for me to have y'all here and help us out with music today. Thank you so much. Now, this morning we're looking at Micah and my brain's kind of all over like I'm now done playing guitar, I'm, we're going to preach, we're going to do this. Um, And I'm going to read to you from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8 in this minor prophet. These are probably the most popular verses in Micah 6. They're probably the ones you've heard of and thought about before. But Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, hear the word of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I also have Matthew chapter 2 in there because we're going to see Jesus here in this sermon um, where Jesus fulfills this prophecy that we read in Micah 6 here in the Gospel of Matthew. And so you'll be able to reference that as we make our way through this. All right. So first thing I want to talk about is the idea of requirements. Do you have any requirements in your life? Like where do I not have requirements? Um, You know, to get a license, you have to have a requirement. Walker has a paper he's writing. He has a prompt. There are requirements. There's a syllabus for a class. You're going to get on an airplane. Like, there's requirements for everything. Well, what about requirements with relationships? Like, are there requirements in relationships? Are there requirements in our relationship with God? You know, one of the most important questions that we ever ask is, what does it mean to know God? Tommy, I feel like I'm feeding back. You just adjust. Thank you. Um, thinking about requirements, like does God have a requirement for you in your relationship with him? What does it mean to have requirements? If you think about um, a business relationship, you know, the moments the losses are greater than the profits, um, you kind of have to start wondering if you're going to continue with that relationship. Um, You know, sometimes we deal with personal friendships like this. If you've ever been hurt by somebody and then they sort of give you the cold shoulder, that's what's happening. The cost is no longer worth the benefit, right? And so then they distance themselves. You know, I met a friend this year who has, I don't really have many friends like this, but I met a friend who has a small airplane and it's super awesome and he has a hangar he puts it in and he's got all this great stuff. And I was like thinking to myself, I bet a lot of people want to be your friend. Um, What a horrible thing. That's called using someone, you know. I want to be close to you as long as it benefits me. But honestly, in relationships, when someone hurts us, Sometimes that's what we do. We're like, you're now too hurtful. You're not worth it. I'm going to ignore you. How does God deal with us? What does it mean to really have a relationship? What what does it mean to have a relationship worth calling a friendship? Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. So Jesus is getting at this point. Like, what do we base our relationships on? What kind of requirements do we have for relationships? 
Now, the reality is, as we experience God's grace and we look at what He's done for us, we start to ask the question, like, why do you want to be friends with us? You know, it's it's a relationship that's built on something greater than what we can offer, apparently. Because God continues to pursue us and continues to want to have a relationship with us. God's desire to have a relationship with us is primarily based on His love for us, no matter the cost. Now, maybe you've experienced things like this. Like, if you're a parent, do you know what it's like to love a little ball of flesh that just makes messes in all sorts of ways and does things that you just can't, you know, you got to clean up and take care of them, and all they can do is sort of stop crying if you finally hack into the code of why they're so upset. That's the great reward. And then they grow up, and it, you know, and, and it changes, but we still have to give to love our children, and we do that because we love them, not because they have earned it, or not because they've somehow gotten to a place where we think, you know, you're worth being nice to. They're our children. We love them because they are our children. God loves us because he made us. Think about some of the things God's done for us. Here's your world. Like, that's nice. Thank you, God, for the world. He's given us nervous systems and muscular systems and cardiovascular systems. Like, he's made our bodies as they are. Thank you, God. That's really, really nice. Um, we read in the scriptures in John chapter 3 that not, God didn't just send his son to sort of forgive us, but actually to save us and to renew us so that we don't have to experience distance from him. God has pursued us at great cost to himself. What is your relationship with God based on? What's it like? In this text that we read, and we're going to reference some other verses, you begin to realize that God's people, they basically think God treats them like this. You ready? Okay. As long as we obey you, you're going to bless us. As long as we do what you say, then we'll be your child. Very different than the song we just heard, you know, Anna sing. They continue to struggle because eventually they face their sin. They're like, you know what? You're right. I I have messed up. And you know what their answer is? Okay, I'm going to make 10,000 rivers of olive oil for you. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. They don't even know how to fix the relationship. What does God require of us? What does the Lord actually require of his people? Um, When you think about your relationship with God, what do you think he requires of you? And people have asked this question throughout the ages. If you ever looked at Greek mythology or Roman mythology, if you look at how the gods relate to people, or maybe you saw a more modern rendition, Wrath of the Titans, played by none other than Liam Neeson, right? As Zeus, of course, he has a, a set of skills that, you know, whatever, that's another movie, but... Um, Liam Neeson says this as Zeus, remind them of who we are. We need their love. Without their prayers, we would die. There's a relationship that in the Greek pantheon or Roman pantheon to where the worshipers have to do something or, they, or the, the God themselves begin to wither. It's, it's a God that's based on entirely the worshiper. It's defined by him. Uh, It's the kind of God that if you irritate, he's going to smite you and sort of flick you off the side of the earth. And, you know, depending on if the other God likes the person you care about or don't care about, you know, they're going to smite them as well. Like, it's a very confusing relationship. And part of why Greek mythology is so interesting is because what the gods do continually surprise you because their emotions are scattered and it's changing. And what kind of God do you have? What's your God? Um, There was a Harvard professor who had a class that sort of pitted some of you know, two of the most respected, you know who their names are, two of the most respected philosophers of the 20th century against one another. 
And what he did was he would um, kind of read their writings and, and put some of their things together, and then he would do the same thing for the other as they had opposing views, and then he would kind of like have them have a discussion. And this was at Harvard. And so the first person he used was Sigmund Freud. You've probably heard of good old Sig, right? Sigmund Freud, 20th century, psychoanalytic psychologist, whatever. And he comes up with this um, sort of uh, dialogue that he has. Sigmund Freud would have said this when asking and thinking about the idea of what does it mean to have a relationship with God. It would be very nice if there were a God who created the world and was a benevolent providence. And if there were a moral character in the, in the universe, a sort of afterlife. But it's in a very, it's, it is a very striking fact that all this is exactly what we wished it would be. We like the idea of a benevolent God with a moral order because we haven't come up with anything better yet. And so kind of distilling down Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytical theories and approaches, the idea is we need there to be a God, and so we kind of make up a God. See Roman and Greek mythology, right? That, that's what those are. That's what that is. But then this Harvard professor chooses another philosopher, another very famous philosopher, probably the most important or at least known spiritual philosopher of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, who said this in the sort of dialogue that he created. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. And so C.S. Lewis, if you know anything about his life and story, um, he's angry at God. He's like, this is an unjust world. There can't be a God because there's pain in the world. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, like there can't be a God. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what a straight line is. If the whole show was as bad and senseless as I say it to be from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who suppose who I'm supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? Like the idea that it's unjust that there would be no justice, right? Everyone feels that way. Things are supposed to be a certain way. Of course, I would have given up the whole idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, my own version of justice. But if I did that, my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole reality of justice and whatever was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, must be the full sense of it. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should have never found out that it has no meaning, just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never have known it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. Do you see the point? The very idea you understand the reality of darkness means you've seen light before. The very idea that you understand that there's such a thing as something being unjust, you in your core, we call it being made in the image of God. There's a desire for justice. So apply the question to our relationship with God. What does it mean for us to have an actual relationship with God? To, to, for him to be just. For him to approach us in reality, not just as we want him to be. We're good at making God our own image. We do it all the time. But who is God really and what does it mean to know him? Who is the God of the Bible? Some verses from Micah to think about since we're looking through Micah. In Micah chapter 2 and in following, we find out how, how the hearts of the people of God think about their relationship with God. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we read, They oppressed and they forgot and they exploited the poor, so much so that it was characteristic of who they are. Micah chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, the courts were corrupt. 
How would you like that? To know that even when you go to court, it's going to be unjust and corrupt. Micah chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. They were guilty of fraudulent commercial practices. They used weighted scales. So people who needed to buy something, they used weighted scales. They would take advantage of them. Their leadership was wicked. They had false prophets. Their pastors lied to them. Their priests lied to them. You know, there are churches in our world who teach things that aren't true. That's why as a church, we're committed to the scriptures. We want to be centered in the scriptures. We don't want to just give you what Brad's coolest opinion is of the modern moment or whatever. Who cares about that? We want to know God's word. Well, their own priests and prophets were lying to them. Micah chapter 3, verse 11, the priests were greedy. Micah 3, 9, their rulers despised justice. And then in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 11, they give a summary about Israel, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. And then we come into this. So here we are. We come into the court scene in Micah chapter 6. This is what the Lord says to Israel. He's calling their priests out. He's calling their leaders out. He's calling their business people out. He's calling them out to authenticity, to realness, to justice. We read in Micah 6, Stand up, plead my case before the mountains, the Lord says. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you, mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So what God is doing is he's saying, we're, we're going to be honest about this. I'm going to tell you, you, you know who I am. I've called you to follow me. And we're going, to, we're going to honestly and accurately talk about your relationship with me and your relationship with one another as well. He has witnesses in the case. That's the mountains and the foundations. God makes his case in verse 3 of chapter 6. He says, my people, what have I done to you? Because at this point, remember how they're acting? Their priests are unruly. Their leaders are unjust. Their courts are corrupt. They use weighted scales. They've forgotten the poor. Like everybody you should be able to trust, you cannot trust. And the Lord says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. In other words, God has said, he's saying to them, remember who I am. You're acting as if you don't know who I am. You're acting as if I'm not real. You're acting as if you have no relationship with me. You're, act, you're living and acting as if you have no relationship with me. Why have you turned away from me? Have I not loved you? Have I not pursued you? Have I not protected you? Have I not given you freedom and yet you pursue bondage? Your hearts, as we read here, are far from me. So they're giving lip service to who God is, but their hearts are far from him. You know, God has this contract with his people where he says, I am your God and you are my people. They're not living as if that's true. He's doing his part, but they're acting like that's not true. How do the people respond? Well, how do you respond when you're confronted? Like when you're confronted and you're caught in something, I mean, you know, you're stealing candy from your brother or sister or you're speeding and then you see the police lights kind of off in the distance. Or you, When you get caught, how do you respond? Well, listen to how God's, your people, listen to how God's people respond. They respond humbly, sort of. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. They're acknowledging you are who you say you are. I realize we have fallen far from you. We're being honest about our relationship with you. So they say, so should we bring burnt offerings? We'll give you calves that are a year old. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Here's an idea. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body 
for the sin of my soul. Do you see what they're doing? They still don't understand their relationship with God. What is their answer to the reality they've not been faithful to him? Well, make a thousand rivers full of olive oil. Come on. We'll give you a thousand rams, maybe. I don't know what a ram's worth, you know. We're going to give you our only child. And their thinking is, I can do these things and I can fix my mistakes. If I do these things, you will, you will forgive me and we'll be good because I've earned forgiveness. How does God respond? How does God respond to their incredible desire for sacrifice, even though it's got to be exaggerated? Again, dig one river of olive oil, but 10,000 or whatever? How does God respond? Here's God's response to them when they're trying to figure out the dissonance between who their hearts say they want to be and who, what their lives actually say they are. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. How would you respond? How do you think they responded? I'm thinking if I would have been the spokesperson for Israel and I had gone before God and I had said, okay, we, you're right. We are corrupt to the core. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. Tony has a gajillion rams and you know Sarah has crazy amounts of olive oil. We'll make it thousands of rivers of it or whatever. So, and you know what? Actually, I'm going to give you one of my children. and that, that will make this right. Aren't you impressed with how far I'm willing to go to make this right? What does God say? Here's what I require. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Well, how is that easy or hard to do? Well, it's hard. But in this moment, it was easy for them. They, they were like, okay, we want to make it right. And let me kind of give you an example of this that I've seen in my own life. When my kids and I go to the beach, I remember one time we were in North Carolina on Nags Head. And we, I was windsurfing, and Jamie and Avery and William were there, and Walker wasn't quite on the scene. And the wind is blowing so hard that they're getting sandblasted. So they love me a lot because they're just like holding up their towels, and the wind's blowing. And I come back to the beach, and it's miserable, and so we put our stuff up. We go to the beach on the other side of Nags Head, where it's a, a little bit more calm. And so now we're able to play in the sand, and little William's running around the beach, and little Avery's running around the beach, and then they kind of go into the water, and I'm watching out. I'm, so, I'm kind of a paranoid guy, I guess, a little. I'm like, there's sharks out there. They're going to eat my children. There could be a Leviathan. I think there's a weird, there's a place in the Bible that talks about, you know, some weird sea beast that's going to come out of the ocean and eat my children. So I'm like kind of near and watching them, just trying to make sure everything's okay, right? And I have no doubt in my mind that if Avery, if in fact, you know, a big monster would have come out of the ocean, I wouldn't have, would not have hesitated to go out there and save her and to beat that thing down or get eaten or, you know, whatever. Who knows what would happen? Of course I would do that. But but what about this? Could I just be merciful and humble with her every day of her life? That is so much more difficult. That once-for-all act that tries to prove something, it's not that it's irrelevant. It's just that actually God's calling you to this. You want to know what's going to bring healing in your relationships with your husband or your wife or your children or your friends or at school or whatever it is. God is inviting us to live into this, to live into acting justly, and to loving mercy, and to walk humbly. And as we do that, we're actually syncing up with his heart. And when we sync up with his heart, who he is begins to become alive in us. And we begin to follow him. We begin to trust him. We begin to look to his word above our own hearts and say, okay, God, 
What does it mean to be merciful in this situation? Or what does it mean for me to walk humbly with you? What does it mean for me to trust you? Not just a once-for-all act trying to prove you're sorry for something, although if you make a big mistake, you should absolutely do that. I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying God's actually inviting us to something greater. He's inviting us to hack into, what does it mean for me to be just? How do you answer that question? How is God just with you? You know, Micah also tells us about one in Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on a cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphratha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's who Jesus is. He's the promised coming king. He's the one whose cheek will be struck. He's the promised shepherd that Micah tells us about, the promised leader that Micah tells about. He's the one that actually can meet the sacrifice that the people of God know is necessary. We're going to give you our firstborn child. That's who Jesus is. God the Father makes that sacrifice for them because that is actually what's going to be required, but they can't do it. And so he does it for them. Um, have you ever heard of uh, Enoch in Genesis chapter 5? And there's a phrase about him. It says this in Genesis 5. Enoch walked faithfully with his God and then was no more because God took him away. Enoch walked faithfully. You know what it doesn't say? Enoch was perfect. Enoch never needed forgiveness. Enoch was never prideful. No, no, no. It says Enoch walked faithfully. What does it mean for us to walk faithfully with our God? Well, it means for us to care about God's justice, to care about God's mercy, to care about walking humbly with him and to move into that because the son that was sent died for us and he's our caretaker and we're going to walk that direction. You know, for those of you who care about your steps, you know how many steps you're supposed to take every day? It's not 10,000. They say it's really more like four to 6,000, so I feel better about myself. But if you, if you walk those steps, you know, if you go for a long hike, like if we go for a hike in Colorado, or sometimes William and I will go hike Spring Creek Trail, we'll do like 10 or 12 miles, it'll say like 24,000 steps. And I'm like, yes. But the thing is, the, the distance between the first step and the last step, that, 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 that's not just one step. It's one step after the other. In your walk with Jesus, in your relationship with God, it's one step at a time. You know, if you're completely new to the faith, the first step is for you to understand this, that Jesus loves you and gave himself for you so that you could be part of his family. That Jesus suffered justly so you could celebrate before God justly. He accepts all of our sin and gives us this grace so that we can be forgiven. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, one of the questions we should ask ourselves about walking humbly, what does it mean for us to kind of imitate Enoch even and to walk faithfully? What does it mean for us to do that? Well, part of it is just simply start by asking the question, you know, where have I been just this week? Take your, take your relationships. Have I been just in my relationships? Have I given people what they deserve? That may not be justice. Maybe we give them what God wants them to have because by God's grace, they deserve his love. Even if their personal acts don't deserve it. You know, for us as Christians, 
It's not impressive. And Jesus talks about this in Luke 6 we read about earlier. It's not impressive to just love those who love you and be nice to those who are nice to you. It's not impressive even to disdain those who maybe you think you're higher than. Like, that's not impressive. The real expression of God's presence and love is here. Acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly, remembering this, that because of what God has done for us, we're able to justly before God, righteously before God, call ourselves His children. It's our identity. It's a promise that He's given to us that we might find life. All right, I'm almost done. Let me read this. This is Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. What is Micah about? This is what it's about. It's about, it's about the one who will come, who will gather us. The one who will come, who will blow open whatever it is that's keeping us back. Sin, of course, the big picture of bondage, not able to, you know, if you, sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. Kind of, if you think about the Ten Commandments, the law of God, some examples here, you know, thou shalt not murder. Like, it's good advice to follow that. You won't have any friends if you don't. You know, thou shalt not bear false testimony. Try to have a real relationship without having truthfulness and authenticity. Like God gives us his law so we can know the truth. But because we're sinners, we constantly break God's law. What do we do with that bondage? This is what we do. I will gather you. I will bring together you. I will bring together like sheep in a pen, like flock in a pasture. The place will throng with people, and the one who breaks open the way will go before them. You know, Jesus is our shepherd. He is our king, and he invites us into following him step by step, day after day, Sunday after Sunday, song after song, asking him to teach us about his justice for us in Jesus. Jesus has received the full penalty and weight of whatever it is that might keep us from having a relationship with God. He suffered it. And so we can rest in that. But it also frees us to love people based on not what they deserve, but based on who God has made them. And we get to learn to love people as God has loved people. And part of the way you can know you're really wrestling with that is that you begin to people not you begin to treat people based on not what they deserve, but on what God's given to you. It's a reshaping of your understanding of what it really means to be merciful, what it means for us to be just, even what it means for us to walk humbly. You know, this week, if you've never read um, the minor prophet Micah, it's not a very long book. It's only you know, a few chapters. You ought to read it. And this week when you're reading it, think to yourself, where is God pointing forward to who Jesus is? It's all over the place. God's pointing us toward one who comes and dies for us, one who comes and rises for us, one who is actually able to be our righteous king and our servant king and our protector and the one who watches over us even today as we seek to trust him and put our hope in him. Okay? Let me pray for us as we approach the table. Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks that you are our righteous king. That you are the one who suffered for us that we might live. That you're the one who conquered death for us. That you're the one who knows our hearts. 
the truth of who we are, that though we say we believe you're good, and we really do believe it, still our hearts struggle to trust you. Would you increase our faith, even as we reflect on your word and we celebrate your supper and as we sing together, Lord, that the reality of Jesus as our righteousness would become palatable and something we can experience and express as we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.